Hey there, podcast listeners. Patrick here. So we are just about to enter week two of our 30-day Kickstarter campaign. You guys, we are 66% funded. I am blown away. Truly, this has been a huge week for us. To everyone that has supported us thus far, I can't begin to express how grateful we are. But here's the thing. Week two of Kickstarter campaigns are notoriously bad. For whatever reason, the momentum seems to fall off, and I really, really don't want that to happen here. We're so close, you guys. Please, theater people, if you love this show, take a quick second right now, put this episode on pause, and jump over to our Kickstarter page and donate. You can find the link on our Facebook or Twitter pages or at our website, theaterpeople.com. That's theater with an E-R-P-P-L.com. And really, truly, any amount makes a difference. We really mean that. If you can swing 50 bucks, we are over the moon about it. But by the same token, two bucks or five bucks means the world to us as well. We're having so much fun making this podcast for you. Please do your part to ensure that we'll be able to keep doing it for another year. And thank you so, so much. Okay, now to the show. Hello, fellow theater people. Welcome to the Theater People Podcast. I'm Patrick Hines, your host. So just to give you a little peek behind the curtain, as they say, Mike and I try to get to the recording space about a half hour ahead of our guest. We usually record in a little room at Pearl Studios in Manhattan, which is why you'll probably hear audition noise and sounds of, you know, dancers in the hallway and pianos throughout this entire episode. If we get all of our equipment set up in time, we try to record the episode's intro before the guest arrives, which is what we're doing right now. And you guys, I am freaking out! Because in about five minutes, one of the biggest musical theater stars to ever live is going to walk through the door. You know, when we started this thing and we put together a list of our dream guests, today's guest, the legendary Elaine Page, didn't even come up. I mean, we were all thinking about her, of course, but it would have been like starting a film podcast thinking we'd have a shot at booking Meryl Streep. For those of you who don't know, Elaine is best known for originating the roles of Ava Perone in Evita and Grisabella in Cats. She's also starred in the West End productions of Chess, Anything Goes, Piaf, Sunset Boulevard, Sweeney Todd, The King and I, and The Drowsy Chaperone. She made her Broadway debut in 1996 in Sunset Boulevard. She returned to Broadway in the 2012 production of Follies. She's recorded 18 solo albums, 7 cast albums. She's had several top 10 hits, performed concerts all over the world. And in 1995, Queen Elizabeth herself appointed Elaine an officer of the Order of the British Empire. All right, I gotta go. She's gonna be here any second. Enjoy the show. Oh my goodness, Miss Elaine Page, it is such an honor to have you on the podcast. Well, it's thrilling to be here. It's wonderful to be back in New York. Um, well, you're here first and foremost to talk about your 50th anniversary farewell concert film. So you, That's right. You did this a tour. Is, I did a tour, a concert tour last year because I'm celebrating 50 years in the business. And uh, of course, when I started in 1964, you weren't even a twinkle in anybody's <laughs> eye. Um, so I thought I would celebrate that by doing a concert tour of the UK, which is what I have done. And, uh, and I put together a selection of songs from my recording career, from my theatre career, uh, from... Oh, that's okay. From, uh, <laughs> You're Elaine Page. Your phone can do whatever it wants. <laughs> oh, dear. 
<laughs> it was Helen Mirren. She was like, girl, That's where it. are well, you? She is a dame. I know. <laughs> and she stole my dresser. <laughs> <laughs> Did she really? Yes, yeah, Spencer Can't is trust my her. dresser. And uh, she's over here with uh, Helen at the moment, uh, wow. working with her on the audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I put together the, the concert and uh, celebrating the 50 years, lots of different uh, music uh, from all aspects of my career and uh, telling anecdotes as well along the way. And um, um, the last one was at the Royal Albert Hall in London with the BBC Concert Orchestra and um, a choir. And it runs 94 minutes long. And uh, the film company came in. They came to us and said, well, we'd like them to film it. And I said, well, yes, that would be a wonderful <laughs> memento to have this filmed. And uh, so they did. And, and it's going out. It's coming out here in, in uh, America on the 12th of May. And Just on the, the 20th one... in Canada. Oh, right. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay, you're ahead of me. I didn't, I didn't know that bit. But uh, what's exciting to me about this is it's kind of a whole new medium, really. Um, the National Theatre in England and uh, the opera world, of course, and the ballet world are already using this format whereby people that can't go to the actual live performance, they can go to a cinema near them and watch it live. So... Um, Obviously, because of the time difference, you're going to get it on a different day completely. But for the UK and Europe, that's what it will be. It will be a live, uh, like a podcast, really. Yeah. And so uh, it's a wonderful, new, exciting medium. So that if you can't get to the theatre, or you know you are not living in New York where all these wonderful shows are on, etc., you can go to a cinema. Most people have got a cinema near where right. they live. So it's quite an exciting new format because you know it just gets beamed down from the old satellite yeah. now, that, now that cinemas have all gone digital now can you explain to me what you mean by farewell i'm finding touring itself a bit tiring now i have to say um it's not the work it's the actual traveling in between you know going from one gig to another on different days i find that a bit hard so it's really what it is is i'm saying farewell to my uh, to touring, I'm hanging up my touring shoes, but ah. I'm not. I'm not retiring. Oh, well, thank you for that clarification. You don't say that word. <laughs> this is doing. So exactly. I'm still going to be doing the one-off concerts and things, which are, and I've got a few lined up in in Scotland and Ireland and uh, England this summer, and. Um, so I'm still going to be doing that, but I'm not actually going to be... And I'm, I'm, at the end of the year, I'm going out to Japan and uh, to Singapore and Hong Kong doing the East and China. But, but I'm going to do it sort of like in little, little groups of things, like a couple of concerts and then have a few days break to get to somewhere else and then so on. So that I'm not... It's the actual relentlessness of uh, travelling in between the shows that I'm finding a bit tiring. So I just thought, well, we'll just do it a different way. Mm-hmm. Well, so we're going to have... I mean, the... calling this I'm Still Here because Stephen sometime uh, rewrote the lyric to his famous song, I'm Still Here, which, of course, you must remember I played in only Farley's. a few years ago in Farley's. Yes, ma'am. Um, he wrote, rewrote it especially for me for this, for this uh, special concert. So uh, wow. so we thought, and the film company loved the idea of it, so we thought, yep, we'll call it that. I'm still here. Oh, that's so cool. Well, we're going to have all the details for everywhere that people can see it in the cinemas on our website. Um, yeah, and so everybody check it out. Yeah. Do you mind if we go back a bit to the beginning? Take me back. <laughs> oh, Lord, a long way. Well, you made your West End debut in 1968 in Hair. Mm-hmm. As a member of the tribe, and I think you understudied Sheila. That's absolutely right. You've done your homework. Yes, I have. Now, 
how was it? I was just curious. My husband insisted that I ask you, first of all, if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about the landscape of the musical theater in London at that time. You know, I think um, the UK has always enjoyed musical theater, but not to the extent possibly uh, that it, you do here in America. We never had that, that kind of traditional musical like Gypsy, like mm-hmm. Singing in the Rain. Like Oklahoma. Like Oklahoma, Porgy and Bess, My Fair Lady, all those great traditional musicals. Um, we didn't really have that in the same way. And in 1968, when I um, uh, first came into the theatre in, uh, in, in the West End anyway, um, there definitely was a shift in, in the, the genre. Uh, in that uh, hair, you know, the first musical I think anybody had ever seen where there were no tabs, for example. There were no curtains. Oh, ta- tabs like tap shoes? And tabs. What are tabs? You don't know what tabs are? I don't. Okay. Tell me. Well, tabs are curtains. The front curtains. Oh. The curtains open and close. Tabs. But uh, the technical term in the theatre business <laughs> is tabs. Well, that's how I was brought up. Okay. Oh, my God, you see how old I am? No. <laughs> I'm giving myself away. But anyway, there were no tabs. And, uh, you know, and as you know, the, the kids in the, the tribe came onto the stage from the audience and all of that kind of thing. The music itself was a completely different style of music. Um, the whole style of musical theatre uh, changed with hair. And um, and I think, it, you know, it was it was... It was a wonderful thing for the audience because you could see their faces. They thought, what the devil is going on? I mean, nobody knew or understood this new form. And um, so I think that was a big, you know, a big shift. But because of hair and shows like that, I think that kind of, um, you know, what was the other one? Um, Godspell. Oh, yes. You know, and Jesus Christ Superstar. I mean, the hair was kind of the, the show, that the benchmark that kind of allowed Andrew Lloyd Webber's of this world to right. do um, Jesus Christ Superstar and Joseph and those kind of shows. It changed, it began to change the landscape of musical theatre. And uh, and I think that's, in a way, probably what encouraged Andrew to to think about, again, changing it yet again, in that when he came along, all the shows were sung through, which mm-hmm. was something that hadn't really happened before either. Right. Well, speaking of Andrew Lloyd Webber, so after, you know, after Hair and 10 years of a lot of very hard work, you had the opportunity to originate, originate the role of uh, Ava Perone in Avita. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about how that role came to you. Well, it was terribly exciting, really. Um, as you know, the album had, had had enjoyed great success. The concept album. Mm-hmm. With Judy Covington singing the leading role of Ava. And, um, and it hit the charts, and there was a big buzz about this uh, new show. And um, everybody really wanted to play the role. I mean, that was the thing. Um, uh, lots of big names, you know, Streisand, mm-hmm. um, I don't know, Liza, yeah. you know, all of them wanted to play this this role. And, um, and so there was a worldwide search for someone to play Ava Perron. And uh, my agent, I was at the time sort of up in uh, Blackpool in the north of England, um, doing a play and filming um, on the end of a pier, actually, <laughs> in Blackpool on a very windy day. And uh, my agent called me and said that they wanted to see me. And I, at that time, I kind of thought to myself, I didn't want to do any more musical theatre for a bit. I felt I was kind of getting in a bit of a rut. And I was still thinking I wanted to be the dramatic actress, mm-hmm. like Dame Helen Mirren, <laughs> Dame Judy Dench. Yes. And... Um, 
So I was reluctant, really, to go. And she says to me, well, please, go buy the album. I want you to hear it. I think once you've heard it, you'll change your mind. Well, of course, she was absolutely right. I bought the that album and I listened to it only once, read all the notes and the synopsis at the front of the LP and, <laughs> uh, um, of course, was completely and utterly hooked from that first listening. And, uh, and I sort of became a bit obsessed with the idea of playing her because I kept thinking, well, I'm not very tall. She wasn't very tall. <laughs> right. For the first time in my life, being short was actually going to be in my favour. <laughs> and, um, and I thought, I can sing that. And it was sort of operatic in a way in its form. And, and I had always done a lot of that at school in my early musical life, singing Mozart and so on and so forth. So I thought, maybe this is, this is going to come up trumps. Anyway, when the first auditions rolled around, I got flu and I was sick and I had no voice and I couldn't see Hal Prince for the initial auditions. And then he came back to London several months later and auditioned again. And this time I went and... Um, and I can remember uh, putting, pinning my hair back a little to suggest the 40s <laughs> and uh, wearing a, a kind of a, a 40s little frock that I'd found in Kensington Market, you know, uh, a genuine article, and 40s shoes and things. And I went along and I sang Yesterday, The Beatles Yesterday, and I sort of decided to do it as if... Uh, as if it were um, a three-act play, really, and uh, in a dramatic way rather than just as a pop song. And uh, and then I was called back eight times more afterwards, back every time, had to go back sing the same songs. And, uh, and then he got me to sing um, Argentina. Uh-huh. And, uh, and then the piece de resistance, of course, was Rainbow High, because that has an enormous uh, scale to it, you know, right down here. And the, uh, the, the, you know, the octaves, it's like two and a half, three octave uh, song. And um, I learned afterwards that Andrew said that that was the song that, you know, you, if you could cut the mustard with that one, you, you know, mm -hmm. you had a shot. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and so several auditions, eight, ten auditions, I don't know, and the final one was just prior to Easter weekend. And um, on the Thursday before Good Friday, uh, he asked me to go to his apartment in London, and I went along for the, what was to be the final audition. And um, Hal Prince was in the room, and Andrew played the piano for me, Tim Rice was there, and me. And that was it, in this tiny little office in his uh, apartment. And um, and I sang yet again, Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. I sang yet again, Rainbow High, and Yesterday. And um, and at the end of the audition, they said, well, thanks so much, that's great, it's great to see you, thank you so much. And I th I'm thinking, I still don't know whether I've got this or not. And um, and he said, uh, yep, that we'll, we'll be in touch. And as I was leaving the room, I remember Tim Rice saying to me, I don't think you'll have to do do-ups on too many people's albums after this, because that's what I used to do to make a living. You were like a backup singer? Yeah. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, just to make some money. And he said, I don't think you'll have to do too many do-ups anymore. I had I played a small part in a film 
and, and it was the showing of the film that particular night. And my mother had come to stay with me for the weekend. And uh, so we went off to see this, we went for dinner, went to see this opening of this film where I had this tiny role. And then went home afterward, and uh, we were just uh, preparing to retire. And uh, there's a ring at my doorbell, and and it's late at night now. It's like coming up to midnight. Oh my goodness! Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, what? Who is this? Nobody ever just turns up at my door. They always ring me first. Anyway, so I go to the door and I pick up the answer machine and I say, "Yes, who is this?" And it was my agent. And her name was Libby Glenn, and she said, oh, "Hi, Elaine." She was Canadian. <laughs> Hi, Elaine. And she spoke with a real drawl like that. I, this is probably a terrible accent. This is amazing. I, I can listen to you do it all day. It's so slow. Anyway, and I said, oh, my goodness, Libby, whatever are you doing here? It's midnight. We're just about to go to bed. Oh, can I come in? Oh, yes, yes, sorry, come in. So she came in, and I remember her standing at my door in a green, dark green cape. And I don't know why I didn't invite her in immediately. It was rather rude of me, but <laughs> I just was so shocked to see her standing there. And she said, well, I have come to tell you oh, God. that the part of Ava Perron... And I said, oh, for goodness sake, Libby, just get on with it, get on with it, tell me. What, what? She said, well, the part... And then she would repeat it. And, uh, it took forever for her to I mean, tell I know me. what happens, and I'm still on the edge of my seat. And she eventually she said, well, Elaine, the role of Ava Perron <laughs> is yours. And I, I just went, oh, my gosh. And she, with that, she flung open her cape. And underneath, she had this huge, like, double magnum or whatever you call the biggest <laughs> bottle of champagne you've ever seen in your life there. And Dom Perignon champagne. And I, I was just so excited. And I remember for some reason, I don't know why, I had a ball of... Um, you know, note paper I'd screwed up. I was about to go and throw away, I suppose, when I opened the door. And I threw it up to the ceiling, and it was a... I was living in a fantastic apartment with very, very high ceilings, and it went up to the ceiling, and it, I remember now it seemed to sort of float down. It was all <laughs> as if everything in my life went into slow motion. Uh, because, you know, it was the role of a lifetime. Yeah. I had got the part after a year of them searching for people, and uh, finally, you know, I had got a part that was really worth having. And uh, and I will never forget that moment, ever. And as I related it to you just now, I kind of relived that moment. It's weird. I, That's amazing. Well, it was very vivid. I felt like I could see it. Yeah. Opening of the, the dramatic opening of the cape with very the champagne. Very exciting. All very exciting. But then, of course, life changed immediately. And, um, and she said to me, you have to get out of your apartment. And I said, why? Why? I said, because you're going to be, the press are going to be on your doorstep first thing in the morning. And I thought, I was crazy. Of course, I knew nothing yeah. about that kind of side of life at all. And, and it didn't interest me either. The only thing I was concerned was that I got this juicy art. And that's what I wanted. And, of course, though, she was right. The next morning, the phone didn't stop ringing. In the end, we did have to take it off the hook. And the press dumped themselves outside my apartment. Was there ever a point, like, did the music ever intimidate you? Like, when you, when you heard the score all the way through, did you just know you could do it? Or was it, did you know it was going to be a lot of work? Well, of course I knew it was a lot of work because it was, uh, it was operatic in its proportions, really. Because, uh, as I say, Andrew Lloyd Webber writes, um, you know, enormous... The, the scale of it, from from the lower echelons of your range to the soprano, and as I say, it was it was covering a lot of three octaves, which is a, a big thing. So I was aware that it was going to be um, a lot of work, 
But, uh, you know, I've never been one shy away from hard work and, and I like a challenge and, uh, and I was so excited because it was a lead, the leading role, the first serious leading role I'd had and, uh, and it was wonderful music. I mean, I just thought the music was dazzling and the lyrics so precise and, you know, uh, made the character like a three-dimensional character. And, and it, of course, it covered her life from her young, early life at the beginning through to her death. So it was, a, it was an operatic, right. in, in a sense, um, role to, to, to be able to get your teeth into. And I just relished it and couldn't wait for the rehearsals. I mean, that part of it I loved, but the other aspect of it, having to do interviews, having to... You know, all the, 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 the sort of the fame aspect of it was just ghastly, and it took me years, really, to, to come to terms with that because I didn't really consider that. I was just wanting to do the work. And, uh, and being quite a shy person, um, I found that aspect of it very difficult to deal with. But the work, I mean, going to rehearsals every day was just amazing. Um, Larry Fuller was doing the, this wonderful choreography and I think we did about, I don't know, 10 or 12 versions of Buenos Aires. <laughs> and everyone, Hal Prince, rejected because it was too too grandiose and too busy and too flash and he wanted to keep it all very much more like an opera, really. Yeah. Well, it, it was like an opera because it was just a black box. There was no set and people just kept bringing on chairs and oh, sitting wow. down and you'd set up the... The uh, the scene with just with nothing. It was there were no props or anything really to speak of. It was just a black set, a black black back wall and black flat, you know wings. Um, so oh, that's was, amazing! It was very raw and very. Uh, it was completely unusual in in its presentation in the production. There was nothing, and um, but it was the most one of the well, obviously the most exciting thing I had ever done. Was there any talk of you coming to do it on Broadway? Yes, oh, indeed. Hal Prince, as soon as we'd uh, opened in London to rave reviews, and uh, for me personally as well, um, it, he said, oh, well, you know, I was taken out, wined and dined, and, and I thought, wow, my gosh, this is it. He said, We're gonna, I'm going to take you to New York and make you a star, and all <laughs> of this stuff. And young and naive as I was, I believed it all. Um, but, of course, I think the problem in the end, it turned out to be that equity here, mm-hmm. and we still have it to this day to some degree, but not like it was then. Basically, American equity wouldn't allow me to come and take, uh, play the role here because I was, you know, it was my first major role and I wasn't really famous at all. You know, that was, this was it, the first breakthrough. And I guess they thought, you know, somebody here should have that same opportunity. And, of course, as you know, Patti LuPone um, had a great success with it, and it made her career, too. Yeah, of and it course. It gave her the opportunity in exactly the same way as it did for me in England. So, unfortunately, yeah, that was it. I was stymied. I didn't get to come with it. Uh, weird technical question. Did you do all... Is it an eight-show week in the West End? Yes, oh, yes. And did you do all eight shows? I did all eight shows for a month. Wow. And then I fell over. (laughs) (laughs) And I just, uh, I could still sing and everything. It wasn't the vocal aspect of it. I just got so physically exhausted from it. Because, you know, as I said earlier, I keep saying it's an operatic kind of thing. Everything is huge. Um, And uh, it it just, the emotional aspect of it, that's what I found um, difficult. I'm not somebody that, I've never learned how to kind of um, save 
anything. Uh-huh. I have to kind of give it 110%. I immerse myself in the role and, uh, and the character and play it to the hilt. And I can't save anything. I don't know how to do that. I've never done it, never been able to do it. So I guess it took its toll more on me than maybe others that have, have found a, a clever way of being able to save something. But um, anyway, in the end, I did. And that's where this thing of you know having a, a second player to play those two shows for you and they used to alternate the matinees so the poor public never knew whether they were going to get me or this <laughs> right. the, other, the other lady right. which was a bit unfair I thought but anyway I can understand now as having produced a show myself yes. um, you know you want to you want the audience to come and enjoy the show so you know, and they always wanted to say that Evita the show is bigger than the person playing it. So, um, but nevertheless, I I did play the show for about twenty months. I think I mean I did wow. nearly two years. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. And then, of course, the next iconic role that you created and that you're closely associated with is Grizabella in Cats. That's right. Yes. So, uh, w- will you tell the the definitive story about how you came to to have that job? Cats is a, a strange one, really, because I I had left Evita. And, um, you know, by now I had a little money in my pocket for the first time in my life, and I decided that I was going to be a little bit more discerning about uh, the roles I was going to take. Anyway, so now here I am. I'm about six months into my into a resting period between uh, having left Evita, waiting, thinking, oh my gosh, and I started to think well, maybe this is it. I'm going to be a one-hit wonder. You know, I, there's not going to be another role. Hal was absolutely right. But uh, he, uh, Andrew had written um, the music to T.S. Eliot, uh, his poems of Cats, and, uh, and I was not cast at the time. And um, Judy Dench, Dame Judy Dench, was going to play Grisabella. And uh, apparently, though, what happened was that they'd been rehearsing for some long time, six weeks or something, and I... Um, I was coming home one night in my car, uh, and the car radio was on, and I heard this wonderful melody, this beautiful tune, no words. And, uh, and I just got arrived at my house when the DJ said, oh, um, I'll play the whole of Andrew Lloyd Webber's new theme um, to his new musical, Cats, after the midnight news. And so I thought, crikey, so I jumped out of the car and I rushed to the front door, and uh, fumbling around in my bag for my keys to try and open the door, because I thought, I've got to get into the house and tape it. And um, and there, down beside me, coming toward me, was this bedraggled... I mean, I've never seen this animal before, this cat <laughs> in the street that I'd lived in now for, like, two or three years. I'd never seen it. And it was thin, to say the least, and really bedraggled and pathetic, poor thing. And I was trying to usher it across my legs because my mother had always told me that if you a black cat crossed your path, it was meant to bring good luck. And because I'd been out of work now for six months, <laughs> I'm beginning to think, I really need to get you to come across here, kiddo. <laughs> and I got a little pussy to cross my legs and I dashed into the house, leaving the front door open and put the cassette in and taped the song. And uh, when I looked back, the cat had sort of wandered in behind me and it looked it looked so pathetic so I gave it a saucer, saucer of milk and it stayed the night. Wow! And I shut the door and we went to bed and I put my cans onto my little Sony uh, uh, tape recorder which was all very new that then, you know. And uh, 
And I listened to this tune over and over and over. And I thought to myself, right, tomorrow morning I'm going to get up. I'm going to go ring Andrew and say, I know I'm nothing to do with the show, but you've got to let me record this song. This has done something to me. I need to record. I have to record it. Anyway, I didn't have to call him in the morning because um, the phone rang and woke me up. And I came running down the stairs to my phone and picked up the phone. And it was Andrew, the other end of the phone. And I couldn't believe it. I was just thinking, this is all too weird. Yes, hello. And he said, oh, hi, Lane. He said, I um, hope I haven't woken you. Well, I didn't tell him yet. <laughs> and um, I, anyway, cut a long story short, he basically was offering me the role in Cats that Judy Dench was going to play, Grisabella, because she had injured herself. She broke an Achilles tendon and was carted off to hospital, and they had no one to play the role. So he called me up to help see if I would bail them out of a wow. difficulty because they were about to open. You know, it was like the Thursday and they were about to open on the Monday. Oh, my God. They were, uh, the previews were about to start on the Monday. They had nobody to play the role. So will I cope, would I go down and uh, discuss it with him and Trevor Nunn, who was directing, which I did. And um, the rest is history, as they say. <laughs> I wanted to talk about another song that you had a huge success with. So in 1984, you had a record-breaking number one hit along with Barbara Dixon with the song I Know Him So Well from Chess, which remains in the Guinness Book of World Records as the biggest-selling UK chart single ever by a female duo. Mm. Unbelievable. I know. It just sort of stayed there for weeks and weeks and weeks. Yeah. And prior to that, I mean, we Barbara and I, every Friday night when the charts would come out, you know, they'd say who was where in the chart. We'd ring each other and say, well, what have you heard? And she'd say, well, I heard it went up four paces. And I said, no, really? How exciting. <laughs> and it was, you know, and every Friday for weeks we did this with each other until one Friday we rang and I said, guess what? She said, I know, we're number one. And it was so exciting. I, I think it just goes to prove that it, it's a lyric that people identified with. Yeah. And, uh, and it meant a great deal to them. And I guess that's the reason it got to number one and stayed there for so long. Why am I And then you got to participate in the actual production of it a few years later when it opened in the West End. That's right, absolutely. Yeah. And it's one of those shows that people, I don't think it did great in America, but people love it. It died in yeah. America, in fact. And again, I was thwarted. I mean, Tim Rice wrote this musical for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, was The idea was, since I didn't get here with Evita right. or Cats, right. um, he said, I'm going to write you a musical, so get you there. I'm going to get you on Broadway. <laughs> he was like, you know... He, had a, he was on a mission. Um, but, of course, what happened there was uh, Trevor Nunn, who was directing, um, he uh, wanted to make it more political. So a lot of rewrites took place. One of the things, unfortunately, that he convinced Tim um, to do was to change my character from Florence, who was originally uh, a Hungarian, uh, into an American, thereby... Uh, thwarting me from playing the role yet again, really, because of the same situation. Mm-hmm. You know, why would you want a, an English woman to come to America to play an American? It's madness. So the equity thing rose its head yet again. 
and I was not able to come and play the, the role that was written for me and that I created in England. So, uh, again, a bit, bit of a disappointment, to say the least. Well, let's get to you making your Broadway debut. I, it was 1996, I believe, in Sunset Boulevard. Mm. Um, and you had stepped into the role... If I, I, I'll let you tell the story because I want to make sure it's right. But you had stepped into the role in kind of another emergency situation exactly, in London. Exactly, yes. I, I'm Andrew's emergency person. <laughs> <laughs> he, he calls me when, uh, when he needs help. <laughs> um, Betty Buckley was playing the role on the London stage. And uh, she was also taken ill, had an appendicitis or something, and was rushed into hospital. And, and so Andrew said to me, would I uh, consider taking on the role over the Christmas period because it was, you know, obviously booked out? And um, um, would I think of doing it for six weeks? So I thought, you know what? Yeah, that sounds the best deal ever. <laughs> I, I can do eight shows a week for six weeks. Fantastic, wonderful role, of course, which, again, I was not able to... Uh, uh, audition for or be seen for originally because I was playing Edith Piaf. Of course. And uh, so so I was discounted originally. So here again, I'm offered an opportunity. Um, so again, I put my head down and I rehearsed every day for, I don't know, 10 days or something oh like that. Oh, my God. Not long. I, I remember it being all a bit of a pressure to learn it and get me on. Um, and then Betty Buckley returned to the role. And then Andrew said to me, would you like to take over from Betty Buckley when she leaves because her contract was coming up and I thought well I know the role I enjoyed it I loved singing it I loved playing Norma Desmond um, again a rich rich role you know of a, of a, a woman who's uh, troubled to say the least and vulnerable and all the aspects of a character that you want to be able to to play and um, so that's what I did and then when it finally closed in London um, uh, I said to Andrew, you know, what's happening with it on Broadway? And he said, well, it's coming to the end of a, a contract. Would I like to come to Broadway? And I said, you're, now you're talking. Here we go. Know, here we go. At last, I have an opportunity. And so, yeah, that's how I came to, to, to play on the Broadway stage. One of my big questions about this time was, like, was the American audience so excited to have you? Oh, it was amazing. When I arrived and, and they put me on they didn't tell any didn't tell the audience they didn't make it and they announced it you know when they were seated yeah oh was, really yeah they didn't say i would come on on the thursday or third of whatever it was they, nobody announced the day i would take over um they i just came on and and, and you know and, and the, the, uh, the over the tannoy system it was announced that the tonight's performance, and you could hear the audience collectively groan. They all thought, oh, the other right. stuff is on. And you heard them all go, oh. And then they said, tonight's performance will be played by Miss Elaine Page. And then they and they're, and they're, and they're, and they're I like, just got chills. Yeah, and they were like, oh, <laughs> noise and the babble and the, of everybody talking and da, da 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 And, of course, I will never forget this night, just like I never forgot the opening night of Evita, because... Um, as I made my entrance down the staircase, which they had to alter, you know. Oh, right. Because the, 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 the uh, banister was so... I was so little, and the, the, the <laughs> dimensions of the set were such that, you know, Betty's a tall woman. Yes. And you could see her quite clearly, but the banister was right <laughs> across my face. So, you know, it was like you see my head bobbing up and down the banister, so they had to, <laughs> they had to raise the steps and... Um, so they got the chippy in, and he literally had to build up the staircase. 
so that I was above the banister. But anyway, as I was walking down the staircase at the very beginning, rather imperiously, thinking that I'm uh, going to meet the funeral director for the monkey, um, and there was a particular stair, a step on the staircase, that I was asked to, to stop and deliver the first line. And as I came on, the whole audience erupted with enormous applause. And, uh, and they continued, and I kept walking, and I thought, well, they'll, they'll stop by the time I get to that step. <laughs> but no, they were still whooping and standing their feet and cheering. I mean, I hadn't done anything yet. <laughs> and they were going bananas, and it was so exciting. Um, Americans I, love to show our adoration. Yeah, it was so amazing. And I got to the step. And still this uh, horrendous, wonderful, exciting noise was coming from the, from the auditorium of, of, from the audience. And I thought, I don't know how to start. I don't, no one's told me about this. <laughs> uh, all my years of experience in the theatre, I don't know how to begin. Because they wouldn't stop. And I couldn't do anything because <laughs> yes, it wouldn't be in character. Right. And so I suddenly went, I thought, I'll just take an intake of breath and see if that works. And I just went... And as I did that, it went, you know, it was like cut with a knife, silence. You're a pro. Oh, my God. So that was a very, very exciting night indeed, and one that, uh, yeah, will live in my memory. Oh, excuse the pun, but um, (laughs) it will, because it was just so exciting. Well, we didn't get to see you on Broadway again until 2012 in Follies. I know. And I'm so curious about what it was about this production that made you decide you wanted to do it because it was starting at the Kennedy Center. Yes, well that was part of the reason actually, to be truthful. I mean of course, it was another chance to play a Stephen Sondheim role um, which, you know, I would just grab with two hands any time one came up. And um, again, it was um, not the leading role either because again, now we're several years on. And I was looking for something to do that um, I wouldn't, uh, uh, I wouldn't kill me, you know. I mean, to do Gypsy now, for example, would be just forget it. So, Are you saying it's never going to happen? No, with me, darling. No way. <laughs> and, you uh, heard it here first, you guys. Mm, oh, no way. I'm sorry. No, no. <laughs> um, and uh, but again, the fact that it was going to be done at the Kennedy Center, and it's something that I'd heard, you know, the Kennedy Center is well known in England, a bit like our National Theatre in a way. Oh, isn't that's it? interesting. I, I didn't know that. Well, it kind of has that connotation For attached sure. to it mm-hmm. that they put on wonderful productions, and I'd never been to Washington. No, really? <laughs> it's a beautiful city. No, but. Um, no, look, it was really the fact that it was Follies, because, again, Follies is not done that very often. Right. And, uh, and I understood that it was going to be a seriously uh, a serious production, and, and I'd heard that Bernadette Peters was going to be playing the lead, and Jan Maxwell and Ron Reyes yes. and, and Danny. Um, Terry White and Terry Jane White. Heidechel. Exactly. Just all, amazing cast. All amazing cast, and they offered me the role of uh, Carlotta Campion, and I thought, well... I get to sing that. Um, I get to sing <laughs> that uh, fantastic song. I'm still here. I mean, this is too good to say no to. Although it, it was difficult, I found it difficult because I was the only Brit surrounded by an entirely um, 
American company, and I was nervous, of yeah. course, uh, because uh, yeah, I had to get the accent right, and and that song is it goes on forever. Well, yeah, as we know, Stephen uh, Sondheim never repeats anything, so it was a, a test to one's memory. Oh, there it goes again. Why <laughs> uh, do I keep saying? That? I love it. I love it. And um, you know, and I thought, oh gosh, can I do this? Am I going to be able to 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 do it? Um, but it was a wonderful experience. Warren Carlyle was the choreographer, Brit, and uh, and that was another thing. I when they said to me initially, "Oh, you know, you're involved in an eight-minute tap number." Oh, right. And I said, "Excuse me, no, not me. No, I won't be doing that." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody's doing it. I said, "No, no, I don't think so." <laughs> and there we were, first day of rehearsals. Okay, guys, and oh my goodness, two hours every morning. This, you know, rehearsing. They're trying to learn this eight-minute tap routine. Was it was incredible. Incredible. Such a clever idea to have the young ones and the older uh, ones uh, reflecting each other. Very, very clever, wonderful choreography. So it was a thrill to be part of such a fantastic production. You're such a superstar. I'm wondering, like, was the was the company like really embraced? Like, were they just so excited to be like around you? No, I, I don't. You know, I don't remember thinking that. We were all just working together, and uh, it was quite nerve wracking for me, actually. I have to admit, because again, because it was a cameo role, it wasn't it wasn't on stage a, mm -hmm. a great deal, and there's not much on the page either. Um, you know, in terms of the character. So you have to kind of create something out of not much other mm -hmm. than the lyric in the song. And, of course, that I had to do a lot of research. There were things, lyric lines in there. I didn't understand what they were at all. Um, and uh, Stephen came in as well, and he was very helpful to me, uh, working with me with the, with the song. I've gotten through, hey, lady, aren't you Better yet, sorry, I thought you were this. Whatever happened to her? Good times and bum times, I've seen them all, and my dear, I'm still here. Here we are, three or four years later, with my 50th anniversary concert. Yeah. And uh, Cameron McIntosh said to me, you want to ask Stephen to rewrite the lyric of I'm Still Here for You? And I said, are you crazy? He won't do that for me. He said, sure he will. He's got a lot of time for you. I said, you think? <laughs> well, the thing Stop I wanted well. to end it on, the thing I wanted to end on was your radio show. Mm. You have a radio show called Elaine Page on Sunday. That's right. Um, and you do a, a much better, better produced, a higher quality version <laughs> of this. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, well, we have uh, play music in between the, the, the conversation. Mm -hmm. And we'll do that for this, too. Oh, okay. Well, uh, yeah, it's the BBC Radio 2. I've been doing it now. I'm, this is my 11th year. And uh, and it is a great show because unlike here, you have Sirius, is it? Yep, the XM radio. Mm, which, so you play musical theatre stuff all day long, don't right, you? 24 yep. hours a day. Well, <laughs> little hokey old UK <laughs> still only has... Uh, one show, and it's uh, uh, to do, you know, in the genre of musical theatre, which is my show. And that's that's the genre we, that it is. It's all musical theatre and film music. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's it's proved to be a big success. Uh, I've got, I don't know, uh, over 2.5 million listeners, right. which is a lot for, for England. Uh, um, 
UK on a Sunday lunchtime between one o'clock and three in the afternoon, and we play the gamut of musical theatre from all the great traditional old old musicals right up to the current. Uh, and in fact, while I'm here, I'm going to go and buy a load of CDs so I can take them back to the. Uh, rather sparse British uh, BBC <laughs> library because they, they need a few new ones in there. Um, you know, it's fantastic and I love it. I just sit there talking to myself, basically, <laughs> uh, uh, as if uh, you know what it's like. Yeah. Uh, and it's a, such a different medium from theatre and the broad strokes you have to create in, in musical theatre particularly. Um, it's just a fun thing to do every week. I love it. It's so fun to like talk about theater with the people who are in the world. Exactly, because we all have and share that same passion and yeah. the joy of it, don't we? Of course. Elaine Page, it has been such an honor to have you on our podcast. Thank you, thank Good you, thank time. you for making time to talk to us while you've been in town. Oh, no, my pleasure. <laughs> and congratulations on your concert, and we're so glad to hear you're not actually saying farewell. Well, I'm not actually saying it's only my touring <laughs> shoes I'm hanging up. That's all it is. <laughs> well, enjoy your time in New York, and hopefully we'll see you again. Hope so. Thanks so thank much you. for having me. I've stopped the dailies in my shoes. All right, fellow theater people, this is just a friendly reminder that we need your support to keep the podcast going. We need to raise $5,000 via Kickstarter in order to keep being able to make new episodes for another year. You can find the link to our Kickstarter campaign on our Facebook or Twitter pages or at our website, theaterpeople.com. That's theater with an E-R-P-P-L.com. If you know you're going to give and you haven't yet, now's as good a time as any, right? Today's episode was produced by Mike Jensen and me. I edited this one. We're giving a huge big thank you this week to the Broadway productions of Kinky Boots and Fun Home, both of which have generously donated tickets to our Kickstarter campaign. Run, run, run to get tickets for both. If you haven't seen them yet, they will blow your mind. Special thanks as always to Bradley Bean, Steve Tipton, Ellen Marsh, and the staff at Oswald's. We'll be back in one week with Tony nominee, the very, very handsome Tony Yazbek. Yeah, that guy puts the Tony in Tony nominee. See what I did there? Until then, tell your friends about us. Let's get the theater community talking. Windsor and Wally's affair, and I'm here. Amos and Andy, Marjong and Platinum Hair, and I'm here. I got through Amy's Irish Rose, five dear babies, major bows. I live through Shirley Temple and I'm here.